Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're going on a thousand-year walk through the night today on Londonist Out Loud on the back of an historical dissection of London in the dark. Before we do that, thanks so much for a lot of very interesting comments that have come in after last week's edition, the second of two on housing. A very warm email and tweets from Daniel Ruiz Tizon, who's keen to underline the seriousness and urgency of the issue of housing. Thanks also to Ravi, to DI, and to a commenter on the episode page from last week, uh, Viewpoint of View is the name they're giving themselves. Uh, it's a long comment. Uh, the headlines are that they considered our debate to be, as they put it, somewhere between the far left and the extreme far left. Uh, the solution that they offer to the London housing crisis is to gather together those who are on social security benefits and those who are working but can't afford to live in town. Living in central London is not a human right, says the commenter. They say those people should be shipped off to live elsewhere. And they describe this as a radical and very unpopular idea. Um, on which final point we can certainly agree. In order to repair my right-wing credentials, here comes some unalloyed capitalism for you. Uh, we've got a range of merchandise uh, now for the show. When I say range, I mean one thing. We have a Londonist Out Loud t-shirt. It comes in a range of uh, sizes and colours, and what could be better as you're herded onto a train with the rest of the working poor than to know you're being evicted in style in a groovy garment bearing images of the city in which you can no longer afford to live. Uh, the Londonist Out Loud t-shirt forms part of a range of uh, bits and pieces with Londonist phrases and slogans and uh, just generally Londony things. You can find it at moreteavicar.com, but a better bet is to go to the Londonist website and find the merchandise link click through we'll also try and get that link onto Acast, which if you're not using it already is a great way to listen to londonist out loud uh, because it means that pictures will pop up and you'll get to see who is talking and the places to which they refer and it's an easy way to get bits of information like that link and uh, other useful data pertinent to the show I should say as well, for the record, that the show really doesn't have a political agenda, although some of the people who appear on it most certainly do. All the same, if you think you've spotted an imbalance in our content, whether political or some other sort of thing, we're always keen and grateful to hear about people to whom you think we should be making a beeline. For today, at the end of the beeline, is Matthew Beaumont, and today is the 18th of April 2015. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds You ain't never seen the light before Just a strong throw from your front door
So I was contacting the PR department of a major London institution just recently. We were meeting a guest and I to talk about something that had occurred on their premises. And I thought it would be nice just to be authentic about it and be in the spot where it happened. So I called up the PR department and the person I spoke to said, well, possibly it might take a little while to arrange it. A lot of paperwork's involving in filming. And I said, no, 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 no filming involved. This is just audio. And she said, well, if it's just audio, why on earth do you need to be there? So with that thought in mind, we're talking about nighttime today and it's streaming sunshine and I've been trying to work out whether we should pretend that it is in fact pitch black. We're sitting in a, a very lovely garden outside the Camden Arts Centre. With me is Matthew Beaumont and he's the author of Night Walking, A Nocturnal History of London. Hello. Hi, good to see you. Are we breaking the rules of authenticity here? Uh, I don't think so. I, I too, was uh, havering and uh, wondering whether, you know, given that the, the, the noises from the Finchley Road sound as if they could have come from the night, whether it would have been a good idea to, to pretend that we were plunged in Stygian darkness. But, uh, you know, frankly, the sunshine's too rare and enjoyable. So let's, let's, let's celebrate it. Let's start with the inception of the project. I know that how many books there are about London and going to any bookshop that has an area that even makes a gesture towards local history for example and there are authors coming at London from all sorts of different angles. To what extent were you on the search for a new angle and to what extent did the night appeal to you naturally? Uh, you're right that it is quite a crowded market London uh, and uh, social history, literary history and you know, encyclopedias, pop pop accounts, graphic novels, short stories. Uh, so the, the bookshops do very, get very crowded in the big, in particular the independent bookshops in London. I think I wasn't looking for a corner of that market which hadn't been colonised, although I do think that, you know, the night hasn't been covered sufficiently. It's been overlooked, undoubtedly, in, in, in accounts of the history of London. But no, the origins of the book really came from two, two things. First of all, I like to walk in London at night. I like to encounter another kind of city i think the, the the city at night is a very different one to the to the city in the day even in the so-called 24-hour city that we supposedly inhabit even with you know good electric lighting in lots of places not that it is good everywhere so there was that that i like to go out into the night and 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 you know sometimes relatively often others not i like to walk the entire way through the night but i also in my other life as a as a lecturer in English at, at UCL, I University College London. I teach the, really the whole sweep of of English literary history, and I began to realise that a lot of the authors that I was teaching, a lot of the authors to whom I'm most attached, were individuals who used to go into London at night. Um, particularly, I'm thinking of romantics and post-romantics people like Blake De Quincey Dickens all of them had a kind of compulsive need to inhabit the streets of the city at night and we're going to be meeting some of those literary figures as we go through the story of London at night I've cast my eyes over your book and it is a, a literary work there's no question about that it's very rich and I, I think this is the sort of thing as opposed to something that one would dip in and out of easily this is something to really be engrossed by much as one would allow oneself to be enveloped by the night so one uh, plunges into your work I suspect and, and the time frame for the work is probably worth talking about as well because it's not up to the present day no I'd originally intended to write a book on London at night from the mid 19th century from Dickens really uh, who I'm particularly passionate about to the present because there's all sorts of interesting material 
there, um, you know, right up to contemporary filmmakers and novelists like Chris Pettit and Ian Sinclair and Will Self. But I then, when I started looking at the, the, the topic more closely, realised that I had to tunnel back deep down into the past and excavate as I saw it at the time, the prehistory of the 19th and 20th century, the modern Nightwalker. And the more I did dig down, the more, more I excavated his past, the more interesting the story seemed to me, and the more, in fact, it seemed to me to be the most important story to tell. The reason for that is because, and the, and the, and the breakthrough when I was beginning the book um, for me, was the discovery that in the medieval period the Nightwalker was in fact a legal entity. It wasn't just a, a kind of label one might apply more or less glamorously, more or less slummily to, I don't know, the, the sort of bohemian poets that from the, from the 18th, 19th century onwards hang about in, in the streets of the city at night. It was an actual legal entity. So in, in the late 13th century, Edward I introduced a statute, the purpose of which was to police the curfew and a curfew which had been introduced in in, uh, the late 11th century by William I. And it was called, this statute, the Nightwalker Statute. And the particular urban subject that it partly constructed, I suppose, and partly targeted was the so-called common Nightwalker. In other words, there there were at least two kinds of Nightwalker in the Middle Ages. And this bifurcation persists you know for, for centuries i think there was the the rich nightwalker there was the, the the nightwalker from the from the elite classes uh who could move around the city at night even after the curfew with relative impunity they were often accompanied by a retinue of servants who would carry forms of lighting sometimes they of course they traveled not on foot but um but by horse or in carriages and then in very stark contrast, there was the common Nightwalker, this figure who gets uh, targeted and, and, and constructed in the, in the Nightwalker statute. And the common Nightwalker was a plebeian subject. It wasn't specifically a female subject. I mean, it's often assumed that Nightwalkers and Streetwalkers are the same thing. That conflation of Nightwalker and Streetwalker doesn't happen till much later, probably the, the 17th and, uh, and 18th century. In the Middle Ages and the early modern period, a Nightwalker could be either male or female, and it referred, on the one hand, to a vagrant, an itinerant, a migrant worker, out of, out of work on the whole, unemployed and homeless often, or it, on the other hand, referred to what today we'd call a sex worker, uh, a prostitute. Um, so those were the two kinds of common Nightwalker, and there was a, a systematic attempt in the Middle Ages and the early modern period at a time when, so I argue in the book, labour and, and a kind of ideology of labour and of hard work was becoming more and more enshrined in the capitalist and Protestant ethic. There was more and more emphasis on the importance of sleep in order to restore the body of the labourer for the, for the day's work and consequently more and more there was an attempt to marginalise, anathematise, criminalise people who didn't go to sleep at night and function uh, effectively and efficiently as labourers in the day but who upset the rhythms of the working of day by being homeless, by not being in work, by hanging about on the streets at night and, and who also disrupted the ideology of the family which was, was also emerging at this time. 
Oh, the more things change. <laughs> so there's a couple of building blocks here which I want to make sure have been fashioned completely. The curfew is from, from when to when? The curfew, the, the beginning of the curfew, curfew is relatively easy to define. It's introduced in the, in the late 11th century, I think 1086. I may have misremembered that very slightly. So within you know, 20 or so years of the, the Norman conquest, introduced by William I, ostensibly to prevent fire in the city, uh, to prevent com- conflagration. So the word curfew is a corruption of the French curvre feu, in other words, cover fire. And it was about covering fire, both the fire of, uh, of lamps and, and hearth fires, more, more importantly. Oh, well, hold on, so it wasn't just everybody has to be home, but it has to be lights out too? Exactly, yeah. It was lights out because of the risk of fire, but it was also a way more surreptitiously, but probably more, more pressingly, of policing the politics of the night in other words preventing preempting political conspiracies which often sort of festered at night and are often kind of you know fostered at, at night so the curvy was introduced in the late 11th century it persists for a couple of centuries but it's really hard to tell exactly when it dies away because it's not that there's not a formal moment at which it suddenly becomes redundant suddenly stops it it's probably imposed more and more laxly the it gets harder and harder to police because the city outgrows its boundaries you know the suburbs and the slums spring up on the other sides of the city city walls and then anyway finally in the 17th particularly the 18th century a kind of nightlife emerges which which simply isn't compatible with uh with with the idea of the curfew so you know in the late 18th century late 17th century sorry public lighting is first introduced in London in the 1680s and by that time really the, the death knell has been sounded for the, for the curfew very comprehensively it's completely died out by then but what I argue in the book is that in spite of that although formally, legally and policing terms there's no longer a curfew by then it's long gone there is a kind of moral curfew and indeed one might say that a moral curfew still exists at night that that people who are out on the streets at night particularly if they're on their own infringe a kind of unwritten moral code and the uh, precise time on the the clock face at which everybody has to be tucked up is when well good question it differed uh, depending on whether it was winter or summer it was usually eight o'clock in the winter in the middle ages and nine o'clock in the summer probably got shunted back to nine o'clock in the winter Ten o'clock in the summer, uh, after after you know, hundred or so years, slightly hard to to tell. And at that point, the gates of the of the walled city would close. the The bells of all the churches would ring out. Would ring. The curfew would be rung. The wicket gates on the side of the the, the city gates would would be closed shortly after the city gates were closed any stragglers would kind of quickly hurry in or hurry out and then the wicket gates too would be closed and then the night watchmen would would begin their rounds um, they were very interesting figures the the night watchmen well that, that's exactly the figure i realized must be existing because you, ma- you mentioned the word policed a couple of times and that suggests that there was a third group of people out and about absolutely right there was a third group of people um and 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 they they did police the city although often incompetently and corruptly and inefficiently and they were the night watchmen and you know the night watchman was the only 
police force effectively right in 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 Britain right up to the introduction of the peelers in the in the early 19th century in England so the night watchmen who are introduced in the middle ages to police the curfew and to patrol the streets of the city at night are, you know they last for centuries and centuries and centuries and they really are a pretty hopeless if not corrupt bunch and why they're interesting is because as a as a third entity in the night as you've rightly indicated is because they they occupy this very ambiguous place between between rich and poor i mean their role is they've got several roles one of which is clearly to protect property the property of the uh, of the rich but they are often themselves even though they are policing prostitutes vagrants the night walkers of the city they are often themselves from almost invariably in fact from the very poorest backgrounds they often not unlike security men today in fact who you see in in office buildings in 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 london and other cities at at night they were often doing more than one job they were you know very much from a a plebeian poor background themselves they were extremely poorly equipped often badly dressed i mean they you know didn't have a lot of protection from the cold they used to swathe their heads in rags in order to protect themselves from the cold they were very poorly armed they might have had a, a halberd, say, if they were really lucky. But you know, probably they just had a had a stick and and a and maybe a bell and a lamp of some kind, an oil oil lamp of some kind. Um, but they were uh, very ambiguous morally. Uh, they were legally quite ambiguous too. They used to fence goods, stolen goods. They often made arrangements with criminals. Uh, they often allowed the rich for a small fee to have ex- you know, exclusive and absolute rights to any streets they liked. They often exploited prostitutes. They sometimes pimped. They were a complicating factor in the city at night and a very volatile and unreliable community of, of, of people. Besides the practical ones of getting locked out of the city, for example, what, what sort of punishments would one face for breaking curfew? a very good question. I mean, there were specific jails in the Middle Ages and the early modern period for night walkers. So the the, the probably the most prominent of these in the in the sort of thirteenth, fourteenth centuries, I think, was called the Tun, so named because it looked like a like a barrel of beer, and they were incarcerated there. Um, they were sometimes ritually humiliated um, so they might have their heads shaved and they might be paraded through the streets so yes there was i mean incarceration was the main form of you know criminalizing the, the, the night walks but but sometimes too they were as it were scapegoated uh, they were almost ritualistically humiliated in order to to demonstrate what you know what the consequences were if you hung about in the streets at night so uh, from what you said uh, I'm understanding that the beginnings of this came about from an occupying force wanting to keep a lid on dissent to a greater degree and as things move forward it starts to be turned into uh, an insertion of moral backbone into a a force of workers how did that evolve as we move through time and and technology and lifestyle transforms Um, I mean you've you've summarised it extremely well That, that is the first important shift I suppose um, the the next big shift is the introduction of public street lighting in the late seventeenth century. The legal curfew falls into desuetude and and a but a but a moral curfew persists, and the night watchmen still 
police the streets at night. The history of the history of the night both does and doesn't change over the course of centuries, right up to the to the to the time of gaslight in the in the nineteenth century. There's there's a sense in which there's a kind of transhistorical story to be told. You know, the experience of homelessness, for example, whether you were a, a vagrant in the Middle Ages or a so-called houseless person in the in the 19th century was you know, it didn't change very much at all one might argue that it still hasn't changed much yes some of the su- sort of superstructural attempts to uh, to deal with the problem of homelessness and the community of, of vagrants on the or prostitutes out on the streets at night changes um, you know in the 19th century charitable institutions for example spring up in an attempt to, to, to deal with the problem but you know the, the basic experience of being on the streets at night really doesn't change much at all however there's a story also to be told and which I try to tell in the book which is more discontinuous and that is the rise really of the of the bohemian often you know poets in the, in the 18th century grub street poets specifically who uh, inhabits the night almost deliberately in order to examine and, and explore the underside of the city and in order to kind of challenge the promise of the Enlightenment and the claims that the Enlightenment culture makes about itself to be so civilised um, in order to challenge, challenge that and, and reveal that beneath its utopian claims that actually you know, there's really quite a dystopian city. Are there present-day analogues or relatively present-day analogues there? I, I was thinking of, of sort of gross out. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Or heroin chic or some of those things that we've seen in the last 20 30 years maybe do we find anything that we can relate that to in the present day well i I suppose slumming has has got a long history hasn't it you know it's it's really in the 18th century i think when nightlife as such begins to emerge and shops 
stay open late and their windows get illuminated and the commodities inside them get lit in in really quite artful ways oh, can i can yeah. i jump on that yeah. because i seem to remember and you were in the perfect position to tell me what i'm getting wrong but i remember i think that there was a big change in theatrical lighting and the, the technical ability to light the inside of a theater that i think occurred and after the restoration somewhere around there am i vaguely close and has that got anything to do with anything uh, yes you're absolutely right it does i i, I mean and you're, and you're right to to point to that at this at this juncture i think because really that because that's part of the prehistory of the public illumination of the streets so in the 17th century in the early 17th century um theatrical lighting often in the form of thousands of candles becomes one of the the most spectacular characteristics of the court mask so public illumination at night in the early from the early 16th 17th century is is an aristocratic if not monarchical phenomenon but towards the end of that century towards the end of the 17th century with the restoration um, the introduction of new technologies there's a kind of embourgeoisement of of public lighting it's no longer just about an aristocratic about lighting the night for the sake of aristocratic pastimes leisure pleasure um, it's about remolding the city in the evenings and at night so that the middle classes too have access to it um, so that they have access to shops so that it's safer and you know not just pu- public street lighting it's it's safer pavements and that kind of thing so yes in a sense the theater specifically the court mask pioneers what will become public street lighting it's about political power it's about staging political power uh, we are powered by our sponsor, who is Audible. And if you'd like to try out their service, you can do so for free for 30 days. Just go to audible.com. And also, you'll get a free audio book. Any title you fancy is yours for free. Uh, if you go to audible.com slash Londonist, Matthew Beaumont, what would you recommend from Audible? Uh, what I'd recommend is uh, something called London, A Short History of the Greatest City of the World, which is part of a, a Great Courses uh, series. And this is given by uh, Robert Buchholz, who's the, the co-author of a, a really wonderful book that came out a couple of years ago uh, called London, A Social History, I think, some sort of 1550 to 1750. So uh, an early modern history of early modern London and it's absolutely full of, of detail it's a really rich and readable book you're listening to Londonist Out Loud I'm in Quentin Wolf, and with me is Matthew Beaumont the author of Nightwalking a nocturnal history of London and we've just switched on the lights chronologically speaking and uh, well, we're about to get literary you're from a literary background we encountered earlier on among the groups of people who were roving around the streets at night I guess they'd be called revellers now and what we I've got a bit of an image of the kind of people who turn up in the stretch limo outside a nightclub and get the VIP entrance past the bouncers and I'm imagining that they're the sort of people who'd be on horseback with their own lights and so forth where these were the, the privileged few is that the case with the literary figures we're going to see uh, no, not so much the literary figures. You're absolutely right about the, you know, the stretch limo driving figures in the early modern period. The, you know, the roisterers and, and revelers, as they were 
cooled um, with their retinues and their flaming torches and their loose morals. The and, and they're still called revelers, and yet I've never met anybody who admits to reveling. <laughs> oh, what are you? What are you doing? I'm reveling. Maybe the odd hooray Henry <laughs> uh, <laughs> admits to reveling. I don't know. I don't don't like to to think of them. Um, I'd like to think they were a dead, a dying species at the very least. Yes, the the poets, the Bohemians, the and, and the proto-Bohemians from the 18th century onwards identified very firmly very committedly with the vagrants who inhabited the city at night and not with the rich in fact the very the very fact that they went on foot some of these figures for the, the grub street authors and the uh, and the urban romanticists of the late 18th century and the early 19th century was itself proof of their sort of anti-aristocratic credentials um, so there's a lot of stuff in the poetry and the prose of the of the early and mid 18th century about how important it is to travel on foot pedestrianism is is a political gesture as it later but in an urban context as it later became for the romantics in a in a rural context more obviously um, so they rejected those who travel about by carriage and who look at the world through a uh, through a window and who are surrounded by servants what the Grub Street poets relish doing I'm thinking of Samuel Johnson of Richard Savage of o- Oliver Goldsmith and various others what they like to do is as it were get down and dirty on the streets at night they sympathised with the prostitutes they sympathised with the vagrants and the homeless and they saw them as in, in a sense telling, telling a deeper and a hidden truth about the city that was concealed and repressed beneath the, the great show of enlightenment and civilization and, and consumerism. This reminds me a great deal of some of those books from the 60s, like Up the Junction or Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, those kind of, as, as though we'd just discovered the working class. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Yes, yeah, so the Grub Street poets of the 18th century did, not unlike those 60s writers, speak, in a sense, in the authentic voice of the of the working class or, or, or the plebeian population of, of London. That was because they led extremely precarious lives as writers. So the figures like Samuel Johnson, Richard Savage, Oliver Goldsmith, who I've mentioned, were, were close to homeless at times. Uh, they, were, they were really grubbing along. In, in the most mean and servile way, trying to get piecemeal literary work from, from magazines, periodicals, trying to sell their poems practically by, the, by the, the, the inch and foot. And they, they were, you know, virtually, virtually homeless. So even Samuel Johnson, who we think of, of course, as this kind of monumental figure of, of, of English literature and this monumental man of man of letters you know immortalized by boswell etc um was in his youth a decrepit marginal figure who hung out with this very strange character richard savage who who was his mentor for for several very significant influential years and who was frequently homeless himself at times when he had no money who was um led this very sort of disreputable existence pretending 
it seems, probably pretending uh, to be the, the, the sort of outcast son of an aristocratic family, um, getting into all sorts of scrapes. And by scrapes, I mean, you know, he was in prison for murder and uh, generally drinking too much, sleeping on the streets, uh, in, in, you know, next to glass houses, glass factory where, factories where, where there was warmth to be derived from the bricks. Um, and so, you know, that was the milieu that these, you know, even writers who later became very respectable, like Johnson, inhabited at this time. So they really, you know, they, they were not just substituting for the voices of the plebeians. They were speaking from experience, too, to, to an extent. And, and bringing it back to the night in particular, what sort of things were they revealing to you as you researched your book? Well, there's a, a wonderful piece by essay really by oliver goldsmith from the from the sort of early to mid 18th century called a a city night piece and he goes out into the city at about two o'clock in the morning and he describes this really uh, dystopian almost lunar cityscape this really you know sort of rotten desert-like landscape uh, which is populated by prostitutes and by homeless men and and women and he points very emphatically to the fact that the condition of the homeless people is caused by the rich and he talks about how they refuse to take any responsibility for them how feeble and inadequate philanthropic charitable attempts to solve these sorts of social problems are um, but even more compelling than the politics of that piece really are, is, is the imaginative flight that it describes he, he, he pictures it as in some ways proleptic of the future as in some way anticipating the future it's as if one gets a glimpse of what the collapse of civilization centuries hence might look like if one goes out into the streets at night and sees all its usually in the day busy spaces full of colourful people suddenly emptied and instead of those bustling crowds we see stragglers you know vagrants exiles really from from the city in the day it's got overtones of zombie film right there i think all this uh, apocalyptic thinking leads us i suspect rather neatly to blake yeah, Blake Blake had a really interesting relationship with the night and with London at night, I think. Um, it can be slightly hard to reconstruct that relationship because, well, partly because Blake is Blake and because his poetry is, you know, often impenetrable, frankly. Um, and even when it's not impenetrable, as in the Songs of Innocence and Experience, is is kind of mystifying um, so so we have to work quite hard or at least I felt I had to work quite hard in order to establish what the knight is doing in his prophetic poems in in particular but I think the knight is doing an awful lot uh, he uses the knight really as a way of exploring the the underside of the enlightenment so his relentless attack on a rationalistic enlightenment culture suggests that that rationalistic enlightenment culture um, actually casts a deep black shadow over the city and over 
humanity. So the paradoxical effect of enlightenment and illumination for him is even greater darkness. And he goes out into the streets, I think, at night, and one sees this, I suspect, this is my argument at one point in the book, in his poem London from the Songs of Experience, he goes out into the streets at night in order almost homeopathically to present the night as this dreadful dystopian space in order to kind of shove it back in the face of the of the enlightenment you know this is this is really what your enlightenment generates what its consequences are he's saying it's prostitutes on the streets it's the blood of soldiers running down church walls it's it's the harlot's cry it's it's chartered streets as he calls them in other words it's a city that's been kind of carved up by property uh, and is defined by its commercial by commercial imperatives and the night for him becomes a an opportunity for a way of unchartering the streets of of sort of undoing something of the logic of the of the Enlightenment, I think. I mean, he did have. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's certainly one scene which which happened after dark, which is of, of really quite crucial, if not epiphanic, importance in in his biography, and that's the the night in 1780. It was the fifth night of the Gordon riots, the anti-Catholic riots of the time, when supposedly, I mean, it's possible, it's apocryphal, but it, you know, and there are different legendary accounts of this, but it, it seems likely that it happened in some way or form he was suddenly caught up walking along up St Martin's Lane to uh, towards Great Queen Street I think in a, uh, he was strolling as he often did um, in order to go and see his old master the, the, the engraver to whom he'd been apprenticed James Bazier uh, and he was suddenly swept up in this crowd of people who were charging up towards Newgate Prison uh, and who and he gets he tumble along in this crowd and ends up in front of Newgate witnessing the the firing the firebombing in effect of of the prison and the liberation of the prisoners particularly those who'd been who'd been jailed over the previous four nights for their role in the anti-catholic riots although by this time the the riots weren't just anti-catholic they'd expanded and in some ways they were they were sort of anti-capitalist riots i don't want to overdo it but they were sort of anti-capitalist riots by this stage. They, you know, it, the fifth night involved the sacking of the Bank of England as well as the sacking of uh, and the firing of of Newgate. So it had become more politically generalised and 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 rather more militant and and you know in some ways slightly less offensive by then. But and so Blake witnesses on that evening this spectacular scene, which is the the vast conflagration of of this symbol of oppression and 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 justice in other words injustice which is the uh, Newgate as as an emblem of the prison system and that has a clearly really deeply impresses itself on his consciousness and on the prophetic poems which are full of images of of prisons being consumed in, in apocalyptic fire so he found something very liberating about that and it was particularly spectacular against the night the London night but he was also I suspect rather traumatized by it too that's very interesting echoes there of something Caroline Shenton, my guest a few weeks ago, uh, something she said about Dickens taking inspiration in her view from the burning of the Houses of Parliament. It seems to have impressed itself upon his imagination in a, a similarly profound way. 
we're knocking on the door of the, the end of the show and I know that we've still got uh, a decent dose of gaslighting to uh, squeeze in but we're, we're going to be finding ourselves ending up in the 19th century and w- what sort of note do we end on in terms of London's relationship with the darkest hours? Well, I mean the book finishes with, with Dickens who's really the, the ultimate night walker because he's such a, a neurotic and a compulsive night walker um, because he he loves the gaslit streets, he loves the mystery the mystery of the streets at night, the, the the strange blur of the gaslights, the magic, the poetry, if you like, of the gaslight, and the whispering of the gas in the pipes. But he's he's driven into these streets at night not just because he finds a kind of poetry in them, as as the great lover of London, but also because he's he's being chased by demons. Uh, so the periods of his life in which he spends most time on the streets at night are the ones where he's most acutely stressed. And, you know, frankly, today he'd be, he'd be on heavy medication, frankly, in order to prevent his going out onto the streets, in order to cure his cr- chronic insomnia. Um, he would, you know, set out into the streets at night in order to escape his oppressive domestic condition at the time his relationship with his wife was was collapsing he would set out in the streets to escape uh, his anxieties about financial issues his relationship with his father it's a whole psychological complex for him the city at night and not only that he's 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 an absolutely uh you know, inveterate night walker. He he covers enormous distances at night. I mean, more than anyone else I encountered in, in in researching this book. You know, sometimes as much as thirty miles he'd cover in a single night. I mean, he walked at a phenomenal speed, but well, certainly at that distance. I mean, he'd walk consistently at four miles an hour, um, which over thirty miles and overnight is 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 shattering it's a frankly shattering speed i've tried to emulate him and it's it's pretty difficult to do but he wasn't sleeping no but he does describe in in some extraordinary passages both in the letters and in the odd essay he describes effectively falling asleep on the road at night so there's a an occasion which he was particularly proud of he boasted about it in his correspondence afterwards when he set out from tavistock square in bloomsbury in the middle of the night and walked all the way to Gads Hill Place in, down in Kent along the old uh, London Road to Dover overnight. Um, that is a distance of 30 miles. And he describes falling asleep or at least lapsing into a sort of hallucinatory state on the road, hallucinating, for example, horsemen passing by, hallucinating... Uh, signposts which don't lead anywhere imagining that he's in the foothills of the Alps rather than on a, on a road in South East England and you know that's what's so fascinating about his experiences as a night walker and his extraordinarily rich poetic a- accounts of it is that they're so phantasmagoric, they're so dreamlike, um, he really encounters a completely different self he, he doesn't just encounter a different kind of city in in his night walks he explores a different kind of self and and he gets pretty close to what you know 50 years later would be called the unconscious i suppose to exploring the unconscious as a space as a territory in those writings well that idea of a different self a different identity different perception of self seems like a good note to end on when we think about london's relationship with itself and how the night might 
change that. The book Night Walking, A Nocturnal History of London, is published by Verso. It's £20 and by Jove, it's in shops this minute now. Matthew Beaumont, thanks very much. Thank you, Quentin, very much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Matthew Beaumont. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.